When Paul Newman's titular Lou Harper is offered a drink by his new client, played by Lauren Bacall, he turns it down. I thought you were a detective, she says. New type, he answers. And that's where the private detective and the noir genre as a whole stood in the 60s. The classic age had passed. Both the style, a heightened black and white aesthetic, and the stories, tales of men and women seduced or driven to rotten means, were no longer in vogue. So what was a P.I. to do in an age of technicolor, hippies, and teen culture? Our two titles tonight both grappled directly with the legacy of Bogart and his ur-detective while trying to update him for this new era. First, we have 1966 Harper, which features Lauren Bacall mirroring the role her on-screen father, General Sternwood, played in The Big Sleep, hiring on Paul Newman's Harper to find her missing husband. Then comes Marlowe, a 1969 adaptation of Chandler's Little Sister, with future Rockford Files star James Garner as a new Philip Marlowe for New World. Together, they make a halfway home between the yesterday of noir and the tomorrow of neo-noir and retro-noir. But no matter how many bikini babes and kung fu masters get thrown up on screen, a few things stay the same about the noir detective. He keeps a gun in his holster and a bottle in his drawer. He always has a cutting remark at the ready, and you can tell how honest he is by how broke he is. So welcome to the 60s, and hold on to your cheap suit, because things only get stranger from here. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Belzer. And tonight, we return stateside to take stock of the detective as he enters the swinging 60s. The ties might get a little looser and the skirts a little shorter, but the detective still has his daily rate to meet plus expenses. Let's kick it off with Harper. Yeah, it's Paul Newman. He's Harper. Harper is, well, that's a little tougher. Here are some girls who think they've got him pinned down. Playing cat and mouse with a man like Harper is a dangerous game. Mouse always gets caught. But I like dangerous games. Your husband keeps lousy company, Mrs. Sampson. As bad as there is in L.A., and that's as bad as there is. Don't tangle with Lou Harper. Go drink some poison. You got a better chance. All right. So Paul Newman's Lou Harper gets hired by Lauren Bacall to locate her missing husband. She fears he's off having an affair, but his attorney, an old army friend of Harper's, thinks he may have gotten taken for a scam. Teen heiresses, mountaintop cults, dockyard fistfights, and immigrant smuggling rings ensue as one would assume. All right, so Tristan, what is your personal experience and relationship with the movie Harper? Uh, absolutely none. I uh, I have never, never seen it before. Um, it wasn't really on my radar at, at all, to be honest, and I don't know why. It's got a, a, a pedigree to it. Uh, clearly, the, the Paul Newman... William Goldman uh, team up is uh, is one that will be revisited uh, just a few short years to uh, to lasting success with Butch Cassidy. 
I had sort of the same relationship to this going in. I'd stumbled across it in TCM put out a noir survey called Dark City, and they have a chapter on detectives, and they brought up this movie and the Tony Rome series with uh, Frank Sinatra, and we we chose Harper over Tony Rome, and I think we we chose correctly. I, I think so. But uh, but yeah, obviously, Paul Newman and William Goldman, great combination here and elsewhere. Uh, and also, as actually I was talking about this after we watched it with another friend, and he pointed out and also came up in our research, my research, William Goldman actually talks about this in one of his books on screenwriting and, you know, quasi-memoir, quasi-writing uh, how-to books, because uh, this is one of his first writing assignments. Well, uh, and yeah, you can tell this is, this is this, so this is one of his, his first screenplays. Uh, um, and, and I think halfway through the, the movie while I was watching it, I texted you, Fred, and I was like, I've just been writing down one-liners the whole time. Um, he, he came out of the gate strong uh, and, and Newman gets some, some choice lines, but really he's, he's pretty generous to all the characters. Uh, there's there's a, a lot of, of memorable banter thrown around here. Yeah, I think it helps that they're they're all very well flushed out characters. I mean, they're certainly not quote unquote realistic. You know, I wouldn't. I don't think anybody's going to mistake this as a grounded drama, but they're they're well drawn in the sense of you have a very clear and distinct personality to each one, and a different point of view, which is how you get great great voices in, in the dialogue. It's a film that's very aware on a, on a structural and a, on a screenplay level of the noirs that have come before it. Um, but it's it's going through and it's making sure that each scene packs as much punch as it can. It's hitting all the beats you expect it to. Uh, but um, but that screenplay and uh, and the star power that, that Newman brings to it really sells it um, every step of the way. Agreed. I mean, yeah, it, it is... Paul Newman's star power, a decision's performance. He is on screen pretty much every single minute. And yeah, he he's doing it. He's doing the work. So yeah, anyway, it's just some context as well. This is another adaptation. So I think it also kind of puts it in an interesting lineage alongside the Marlowe's and the uh, Mike Hammers. Lou Harper is a character actually named Lou Archer in the books. Uh, the the first book is called The Moving Target. It was released in 1949, written by Ross MacDonald. And it ended up being a 17 or 18 book series starring this, this character. But obviously the film adaptation didn't come along until 15 or 17 years later here. Let's get into the movie itself. And, you know, I think the, the biggest things from the game, the, the movie is highlighting from the get-go is his relationship to noir detectives, noir and then noir detectives, and then specifically the big sleep, right? I mean, like you don't cast Lauren McCall and yeah, not, not, not an accident. Come to mind. Yeah. Uh, very, very much recalling the big sleep and, and the beats, the, the beats are both different and, and not so different at the same time. They're, they're, they're on the sixties window dressing. Uh, right. Uh, but, uh, but we've got, well, um, we, of course we have that, that introduction of Bacall in in much the same fashion that that her her father gets introduced in in the big sleep she is the one that's calling Bogart to the um the 
mansion and and there she is under a, a tanning lamp and right and she's also suffered a uh you know an accident a horse riding accident that has in some ways rendered her per society quote unquote an invalid um no i think that's a total parallel even after that as he continues to explore the grounds and he talks to the stepdaughter that to me recalls the interaction with the younger sister in the big sleep yeah absolutely the big sleep is um is such a huge reference point for for this film you can you can tell and uh and and, you know why wouldn't it be it's um it's such a, a quintessential noir and um and especially in the private detective genre but but we get right off the bat right the the opening scene tells us that well um we're we're in for something a little different right against those opening credits we've got something that we would never see humphrey bogart doing we've got paul newman waking up in his underwear and and uh, pulling himself together for the day he's up he's a little bit of a mess oh yeah that's it's such an interesting yeah because he's a little older a little sadder you know he's getting divorced that opening sequence that's one of the things that goldman talks about in his in his book apparently they were you know making the movie and people liked it but they did not like newman's character and so he came up with during i believe during shooting came up with this intro montage that involves him going to make coffee realizing he's out of filters and then going to the trash can and using the previous days and just underlying like he's he's down on his luck right and making him that underdog from the start to win you over just to help get you in the mindset of right this guy is is fighting in every direction he can't catch a break so we're gonna we're gonna root with him and empathize with him and identify with him yeah um and um, and and we'll we'll dig into this later on, but um, he's definitely uh, cut a little bit differently than than James Garner is in uh, in Marlowe to follow. Uh, but New- partly that's just because Newman brings his um, his signature uh, movie star presence here that that no one else really carries quite like him. Um, no. no it's he's no Bogart, but he doesn't have to be. He's he's his own brand. Doing such a different thing, right? I mean, it, it is wattage, right? Like Bogart is presence and is is taking advantage of how he reads on screen and, and is weathered and sort of laconic style. But Newman is just a light bulb going off and illuminating the screen. And you're just you're you're compelled. Yeah, uh, and and Bogart uh, being Bogart had had this ability, despite the the fact that he was on the shorter side, he could he could seem like the tallest person in any room. Any a, anyone else didn't quite stack up to him. Newman Newman has the presence; he has the right. physical presence, and and it's it's felt. He's more masculine than than most of the detectives we've seen, which seem like caricatures of masculinity. Right. Um, but he's also the, the much uh, hammer types. But he's also uh, more beautiful, right? Like simultaneously, uh, it, it's no, but it's um, he again. This movie just kind of lives and dies by Paul Newman, and Paul Newman's got the goods. Uh, but no, I also like I want to return to the getting a divorce thing because I, I do think that that is a really interesting evolution of the archetype that 
plays to certain elements, but plays against others, right? Because it plays into the that underdog sense that most noir detectives share, right? They're always scrambling to make, make ends meet and their going rate isn't great and uh, all, all of that. And so it, that feels of a piece to be like, and now he's divorced and there's some, some past trauma and tragedy to his life. And only that, but it doesn't even get resolved by the end of the movie. But on the flip side, it does also, you know, I, I, uh, during this process of, of watching these movies for, for the season, it's become clear to me, and we've talked about this, I think, during The Big Sleeper, uh, that, that how much James Bond is influenced by the Pulp Detective, right? Of like going around, throwing punches and getting the girls, except that James Bond's doing it in far-flung international locations, and the detective's doing it in rainy LA. But Harper kind of takes that off the off the table, right? I mean, he's not above using his good looks and charisma to seduce women as a tactic, but there's never that sense that it's going to be followed through on. And it, you know, I mean, he flat out turns down the, uh, the stepdaughter and he's still hung up on the one who got away. And, and so it's, it's sort of an interesting next step with the character or the, the archetype, especially also just sort of where the country was in relation to divorce and, and culturally how much more prevalent that was becoming. Yeah. I, I think uh, it's, it's interesting because what, what we see here is it, it's not like, it's not like things have stayed completely the same. This is a, this is a film taking place in the, the swing in sixties. It's that decade is wrapped up all around this movie. Uh, it's, um, it 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 isn't what it what it isn't doing is leaping forward in uh, a technical sense. It's mm-hmm. still it's still very much still hitting the beats and concerned with telling the story in roughly the same way. It's just got a, a shinier mod coat of paint on it. Yeah, let's talk about the beats because I think that is it. It feels very solid. In a, in a sort of classic detective sense, in terms of the mystery and the structure that we're we're moving through, you know, and Goldman's uh, got a good grasp on that. Gold, he's he's not he's not just a pretender. He he's a good writer that knows what he's doing. One hundred percent. And yeah, I, I'm not familiar with the book that he's drawing from, but I presume also there's a lot of it there. And underneath underneath those modern trappings, you know, the mystery within mystery, right, where he's hired to find the um sorry to find this this rich magnate and ends up becoming involved with so just you know to, to run through the beats he goes looking for the rich magnate who went flew to vegas and then disappears and it turns out that several of his business partners had been using him to smuggle illegal immigrants in from mexico as day laborers and they decided to, after taking advantage of him in other ways, decided to kidnap him to get more money out of him. And so, you know, there's this whole like bigger conspiracy that Harper gets sucked into, which feels very of a piece with the classic Marlowe. I start off doing one mystery and I end up getting involved in a completely different mystery that also gets solved by the end that is related but distinct. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, 
uh, it, it's just modernizing it or modern taking it to the uh, to the the middle of the '60s, and uh, and in doing so, I think it brings it brings up something that we haven't really really seen from our private detectives before, and it's it's got a new um, a new force for our private eye to contend with, and that's counterculture, which mm. um, which is something that's present in both of the films that we're looking at tonight, uh, but um, but here we've got that we have Paul Newman, um, who yes maybe maybe an old stick, but he still got some swagger, and he um, and and he navigates this train reasonably confidently mm-hmm. he he uh and it, it probably doesn't hurt that some of the the say the uh the the astrological uh the the mountaintop cult the some some of the the counterculture that we're we're seeing presented here is um it is shown to be so so outlandish that that the detective feels particularly grounded and um, and not um, not out of place. Uh, sure. No, no, I think it's fair. But it is such a, you know, from the get-go, it is, it's playing that card, right? I mean, he shows up at the house, and the second thing that he does after he meets Lord McCall is he talks to the stepdaughter, and she is out by the pool in a bikini dancing on a... Just, in a her own world. Just doing her own thing. Like, you know, I mean, it, it is, to a certain degree, I wonder if it's 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 a cynical play for you know teen beach movies either either referencing or directly trying to get in on that uh that audience and then also you know later we go to a club where there's a torch singer and a very classic like she's sitting at the piano playing a sad song as a character and we talked about this a little bit uh last episode with um detective bureau two three of a noir archetype that hasn't appeared as much in the detective movies that we've watched, but is part of the larger concept of noir of that, that torch singer, seductress, ingenue character, except here she stops playing and the club becomes like a teeny bopper. Like everybody's out on the floor dancing to some music. Very, actually very reminiscent of the similar scene in detective bureau two, three, where they go to their end up in the club and they're, they're up in the, mezzanine watching as as they play live music well um I, I and you bring up a good a really good point with the the teeny boppers and i and i think this is something that we could probably pick apart a bit more in classic noir too but undeniably we're at a point where where these um these noirs neo-noirs where where we're at they're they're being influenced by a range of different movies it's not just the classic noirs that that are are playing into this uh but I think we'll see we'll we'll see that uh plenty in uh in in Marlowe too. Mm-hmm. Uh but there's um there's other genres there's there's definitely some Lolita uh and sure. mix here for sure. Well, I think that's the other interesting update here is the attorney friend who's obsessed with his client's daughter who is I don't know 19 maybe at this point in yeah. the movie, but it implies that this obsession has been going on since for a bad amount of time. And ultimately the reveal is, is that the attorney is the one who killed the missing 
millionaire, not because he was involved in the kidnapping or any of these schemes that was going on, but because he thinks he finally has a shot with the daughter and he goes, well, he'll never approve. So I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity to kill him. And that feels far more modern. Like you said, drawing on Lolita, I mean, and the book maybe had been published in 1949. I think we'll talk about this a little bit too, but in terms of what has finally made it to the screen, that feels like a much more modern touch of, of the narrative. Yeah. I, I think as far as what cinema, what, um, what Hollywood was ready for was not the mm-hmm. same as what, what pulp literature was, right. was ready for. So yeah, it takes a while to bring some of those themes uh, in, into theaters. What do you think of the ending? So Lou realizes that it's his buddy who killed the guy. They're driving back to the house. Lou says, I'm going to have to tell them that you did it. And his buddy goes, well, I'm going to have to shoot you so that you don't. And he goes, I guess you're going to have to. William Goldman likes his freeze frames. Right. Uh, So they they pull to a stop. Lou gets out of the car. He starts walking towards the house with the evidence he's collected. His buddy, the attorney, steps out with the gun. And his buddy goes, ah, shoot, or something like that, and doesn't do it. And then Lou also says, ah, shoot, and throws his hands up in the air, and it's a freeze frame. And like ambiguity, I'm great with, but I'm really curious if the implication, because he's mirroring the friend not shooting him, is that Lou is not going to tell the the police that his buddy is responsible for the the death of this. You know, like is that oh. is that supposed to be the takeaway? I, I, I on the one hand, I don't think so because that's not what this movie seems to be in the tone of the movie. It's a very light movie, but at the same time is so clearly mirroring the friend that it raises that question for me of, is that what's happening here? I I honestly had not thought that that was, that was so a do you possibility. Think throws but, his hands up and drops his stuff. Like what, 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 why do you think he's doing that? I, in that moment? I, I, I think that he's, I, I took it that he was accepting that, that he, it might be the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be it. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, and, and again, but like there's it, my, I, I, you know, I'm, it, it ends in that freeze frame. Ambiguity, like, right. Right. Exactly. Uh, but I was just sort of curious that it was even opening that, that door. Cause it just felt like such a more complicated ethical, moral, philosophical direction for the movie to go in all of a sudden at the end compared to the, the pitch that the rest of it is at, which is, Again, not like, terribly philosophical. No, it's very fun, but it is sort of again engaging these very broad characterizations of California in the '60s and where the culture was and the "quote unquote" wild people that Lou is meeting over the, the course of this investigation. The um, and specifically, you know, this to me feels also like a key step towards the long goodbye in the '70s and from there to, you know, inherent vice. I mean, this, this feels so much like the start of the weird California subdivision of the noir detective story. And especially the cult, the cult up on the mountaintop. I was like, this could be in some of the titles that we'll be looking at later. This, this, uh, you know, like this could be in Big Lebowski. This could be in inherent vice. This could be in, uh, um, under the silver lake, under the silver lake, like any of those movies. Th- there's a definite 
subgenre of that is that is weird California noir and yeah. and it's it's very enjoyable. I I get a lot of mileage out of that. So one hundred percent. No, it's it's, I, it's it's just that's one of the great things about for I, I would say for myself and I'm assuming for both of us of discovering this movie as part of this process is being like oh here's sort of an earlier step in the process. So I feel like a lot of that gets drawn back to the long goodbye, which is the more well-known iteration of that concept in which I do like, I do think is, I I do think is a better movie than this, but this is still a pretty fun and enjoyable movie that is doing some of the same stuff. Uh, Yeah. Agreed. And, and we haven't really shouted out anyone, but beyond, um, uh, beyond Newman and Bacall, but the, the supporting cast is, is a blast. They they show up and uh, and they're memorable and they're relatively small parts. I mean, poor, poor Shelley Winters gets a little uh, a little bit of a raw deal just getting uh, getting to uh, uh, eat voraciously and then ultimately getting locked in a closet and having her shoe stolen right. and <laughs> abandoned by by Paul Newman. <laughs> She's yeah. just left there. Yeah, it's such an interest like that. That whole culmination in the Beach that House too feels so. That feels very classic, like the the conspirators and the junkies all being bound up together, and it's in this little beach house. I, that to me felt also like a very conscious throwback. Uh, so yeah, I mentioned earlier, and I, I just think this is sort of, I think you explained it, but just sort of explored a little bit more fully. I, I find it interesting how much the delay between publication and production sort of mirrors where the culture is as perceived by film. And and like you said, I think part of it is the difference between what Pulp Fiction could get away with and what the movies could get away with at different points in time. But I think also it speaks to how much more the movies, especially through this time, helped define culture, right? That, or at least how we look back and remember culture so that we look back and say, this movie adaptation feels very much like a 60s adaptation. And I'm sure Goldman made some tweaks in the process of, of, of writing the screenplay. But even that ending, which I would assume comes from the book, feels like something that you would not have seen in a 40s or 50s movie, but does feel like 60s and not just 60s movie making, but 60s culture and where the culture was. So I, I just find it sort of an interesting way that the the movie self-selected to match where the times were, even in terms of when they were adapting material that had been around for at least a decade in most of these cases, at least for these detective movies. Yeah, I think that's, I, I think it's a really astute point. Uh, and, and I'm not well read enough on, on pulp literature to know like what we were not seeing, what wasn't getting adapted. Um, but, but I, mean, I think Highsmith is a good, example mm. that there's uh there there's things that were just not going to be filmed at at in the 50s um and and it took still a little while just getting film. around to filming exactly um that that you know novelists in this vein were not ne- not necessarily everything they were putting out even if it was was good material was um was suitable for for what hollywood was producing at the time yeah yeah no i like I said, I, I had this question, that's why I put it in our, our flow, but then you answered it, and I just wanted to kind of hit on it a little bit further, but I, th- I thought your, your insight about the difference between publication and, and production are, are spot on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, that kind of wraps up for me. I, 
the I think the movie is really interesting and contextually, and I think it's really a fun watch. But there's also not like a lot to it. But that's okay because it's not a movie that is giving you. It's, it's not a movie trying to give you a lot. It's a movie delivering exactly what you want out of this kind of things. Um, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by it. I wasn't. I wasn't sure what to expect going in. I should have uh, with the the Newman Goldman pairing. I should have been been prepared for for something as as good as what it was but uh but i i really liked it i agree which brings us to marlo mr marlo uh, yes mr winslow wong is freaking out he's trying to make trouble for mr philip marlo what wong doesn't know is that marlo's a tough guy to trouble the word is you are a cool cat well, the word is wrong. I go all to pieces over nothing. So a young woman hires Marlo to find her missing brother, which gets him drawn into looping mysteries, connecting a sitcom star, a gangster, Bruce Lee, sibling blackmail, and ESP experiments. Welcome to the 60s, baby. What was your experience with Marlo? Have have not seen it. Uh, ha, did not have it on. Did not have it on my radar. Uh, despite the fact that we've been going through all of the Marlowe films, um, that this one, um, this this one was totally new to me. Yeah, the movie was new to me. I read the book, which is based off of uh, Chandler's The Little Sister, but I'd read it um, 13, 15 years ago now, and. So from what I recall, it's one of his later ones, and it certainly didn't stick with me. I was watching it this time and going, man, this is all fresh fresh to me. But I went back and checked, and apparently a lot of it is drawn from the the, the source material. So it, it just was not, I don't know, because I've definitely watched some of the other Marlowe's that we've watched. Even though it's been a long time since I read the book, I'd still you know, get echoes of moments from the the text i'm like oh right I, re- I remember this beat from the story and but here i was just like uh, this is all coming in coming in fresh uh what about rockford files were you did you watch it are you were you a fan mm, i have never seen it me neither i think we probably will if we do ever get around to setting up a patreon and starting to do tv shows and uh I, i'm only aware of it really from the ben folds five song uh, there's a song where he references sitting around and watching the Rockford Files. Um, and that was the only reason that, that I ever even heard of it. So uh, giving away our shared ages, middle millennials, elder millennials. I can't remember where we fall we're, in the mid- middle-ish. I think we're middle millennials. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we, we missed the, we missed the cutoff for Rockford Files. And I'm sure we have some peers who watched it and reruns on TV land or whatever, but uh it is, it is a gap for both of us in our detective mystery. Yes. Uh, gosh, uh, this is a, um, this is a change of pace from, from Harper. That is for sure. Uh, there is, there's no mistaking uh, uh, James Garner for, for Paul Newman. No, I mean, I get why, you know, he had a TV career before this. And so just a little context why we brought the Rockford Files, right? So he had a, career prior to this on tv in a western tv show for several years and then he had kind of a movie career and and the the western tv show was in the in the 50s and then in the 70s largely off of this movie and 
um, and his success in the the previous TV show, he did you hear that? that? I heard that like breaking up front. So largely after the success of the previous TV show and this this relative success of this movie, he they put together the Rockford Files, which is essentially him doing this character mixed with the TV show character that he played. But now, and that, that was that was released in the seventies after this movie. So this is kind of is in between as a, as a fulcrum point between those two very successful TV periods of his career. So I watching it, I was like, his style is not lighting up the screen for me, but at the same time, I completely get the appeal of watching him week after week, just sort of doing his thing and sardonically reacting to everything that gets thrown his way. You know, it's very comforting how, nonplussed he is at everything and so you just sort of go yeah okay yes he's a very steady presence um, yeah absolutely for me unlike harper where 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 paul newman is exuding that sense of cool garner is not the like you want to be him kind of uh uh kind of aura that both bogart and newman exude in very different ways agreed he's he's comfortable but he's not yeah he's just not lining up the screen um, but it, it's still sort of an interesting and so this is the you know this comes in 1969 and it kicks off another three Marlowe adaptations over the course of the 70s um, which we'll get to over the next several weeks so it is also interesting how as in the 70s noir makes starts to return as both retro noir and neo noir you know this kind of is at the vanguard of setting off that, that wave of returning to the, you know, again, the urtext, the original definitive detective, maybe not chronologically, but in terms, as we talked about many episodes ago, just in terms of impact Bogart and, and his, his Marlowe. And so I, I'm not surprised that they, they would return to that. Well, again, many times in the seventies, as they tried to figure out how to update and, bring him into the new the new period in the new decade starting here right so uh, again we have the 60s coat of paint being applied to a decades old source material at this point and actually i kind of i liked the details like they were to me the most enjoyable elements of the movie were like the fun little bits of 60s late 60s ephemera right like the Barbershop next door that's holding his calls. What was it? The intro. The intro. Uh, yeah. That. Uh, that. I mean. That. That does. It, I think it sets a pace that the movie doesn't quite um, no. live up to. But. Um, but it does. It does position you in that time frame. A hundred percent. The you know again the ESP lab the, um, Bruce Lee. I mean, it is wild seeing Bruce Lee in this I, I, I completely it, it understand is. historically contextually why he's in this role like what where he was in his career just starting off uh, in terms of American productions and and making that transition and he's coming off of TV right he, he'd done Green Hornet for yeah spell at this point. yeah I think so um so um, what came to mind a couple times during this, certainly um, a little bit with the intro, but certainly with the Bruce Lee uh, arc in here, um, is is the the movies or the movie series that that is clearly influencing 
this this iteration of the private detective and that's bond uh sure. bruce lee feels like a, a bond henchman in this totally he could be a jaws or a yeah that's a really good point that it is and i think we didn't really get into this i think with my camera but apparently with mickey splain's later my camera books hammer kind of goes into a mock spy direction right like and he's already starting to do that because he's already such an emphasis on dealing with like communists and spies and post-war malaise. But then it gets apparently even pulpier and broader of like trying to find the jewels or whatever. So I think it's sort of an interesting on the pulp side, how the detectives fed into the spy novels, which then fed back into the detective stories and the two were kind of bouncing off of each other. Yeah. The Bond movies for so long have just been, reacting to the action movies of the of the given mm. decade um that it's easy to forget how how like once upon a time in the 60s they were the ones influencing uh, so much else that was was happening so uh so that's that's felt here for, for me more so more so here than in harper no definitely here is where i but i, I think you're spot on the bruce lee is spot on and even the way he deals with them of ducking out of the way feels like classic yep. 60s or 70s bond dealing with the henchman and just walking back in and fixing a suit and talking to the, you know, the big bad and saying like, ah, your guy took a fall or whatever toss off line he gave as he went, went in. Um, and then, you know, I think this one also is, is invoking the previous Marlowe adaptations very specifically. Uh, you know, the, there's a couple of first person shots that I'm like, is this a lady in the lake reference or riff? Uh, that were sort of interesting. And the drugged cigarette even recalls a bit um, Murder My Sweet. Murder My Sweet, yeah, with the uh, yeah. getting the, drugged the, and, and put in the, uh, you know, I had the same, the same flashback there. And also that was interesting, I don't, I don't remember this from, again, I cannot remember this book, but the fact that he gets clubbed but doesn't get knocked out, I thought was interesting just because I feel like the detective getting clubbed at the end of a chapter and then waking up the next chapter someplace else and having like missed some of the excitement is such a classic of the, is like a trope of the genre. So it's sort of interesting to modify it a little bit, be like, all right, we're going to club him so that he can't, it doesn't really make a difference in the story, but it did feel a little bit like them kind of trying to play with the, the conventions a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, absolutely. You know, we haven't talked about his reader Moreno. Oh, <laughs> the reason to watch this movie. It, she's a, uh, uh, absolutely the reason to watch this movie she's great put her uh, why why was she not in absolutely everything i don't know i mean uh, just she, she the makes screen. the most of every moment she's on there yeah just uh, uh, going back to paul newman right just like somebody who has presence on screen and is brings that electric charge and is much more forceful in a way that paul newman is is more of that laid back like even when he's doing his thing it's still you know, not trying too hard, but Rita Moreno is like just demanding. That well, you the, the, this is the difference. Paul Newman was always the coolest person on screen mm-hmm. um, in, in Harper and in pretty much every movie. Uh, but, but James Garner here is, is not cooler than Bruce Lee is not cooler than Rita Moreno is not cooler yeah. than William Daniels, arguably. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bummer when he kills Bruce Lee. You're like, I wouldn't mind Bruce Lee hanging out a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> uh so um so rita uh 
it, it's uh, and it's it's just nice to see uh, you know people of color actually having a a even if it is a a side role getting starting to get something to do in in these movies it's sure. it's a it's at least a step forward so it's, it's a very very low bar to clear but the movie at least clears this clears this bar uh yeah you know the other interesting thing i thought with this coming in 69 is that it feels like it's also been influenced by and continues to influence the giallo right like you've got a oh the ice pick the uh, ice yeah. pick a killer, you know killer going around and stabbing people it's much more you know usually these movies there's like or at least in the Marlowe movies, there's a murder. You know, he gets hired to do one thing, then there's a murder. And then for a while, he's still investigating stuff, and then there's another murder. But here, it's just like the bodies are stacking up. Somebody's going around and cleaning house. And, you know, we've got the first yeah, so, shots, that, the ladies in skimpy outfits, the, the like the in much more intense colors, uh, color, colors timing for the, the movie. It all felt like a pale recreation of some of the giallo trends that were already in development in Italy at the time. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it, it's definitely got some, um, I mean, we're, we're a little, we're a little ahead of the, the height of Giallo, but Mario Bava has been doing his thing for a little while. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you can, you can definitely see some of that luridness. Right. Like way in when here. he opens the door and the brother's body falls onto him with another, in like the ice, that yep. felt to me like pure Giallo. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I don't know. Is there anything else really? I mean, like the the plot is typical Chandler and kind of goes in loops. And there's another, like, like I said, the, it turns out the sister who's looking for her brother is because the brother was orchestrating blackmail on the sitcom star. It turns out is also their shared sister, and so it's inter sibling blackmail and it involves this doctor. I mean, it's you know, it's the usual convoluted nonsense that's just there to hang interesting scenes and characters that the the detective meets along the way except i'm pretty sure bruce bruce lee's character is not in the uh the original novel i'm i'm oh, well, fairly confident well that's a good addition i approve <laughs> I, I absolutely uh, approve of that but yeah there's just uh, not a lot for uh, for me at least to, to talk about here i don't know it's like no, fine i it is it's fine it's i i didn't um, it's got too many good uh, good actors in in smaller parts. Arch- Archie Bunker. <laughs> That's right, Archie Bunker. Yeah, uh, uh, we we, uh, we we have a, a fun cast of supporting characters to really kind of carry this through. But that um, that fight uh, near the end between Mavis and Oferme was uh, was was so um, so over the top and so so melodramatic i i i I, at first i was i was a little taken aback by it but i just enjoyed that it kept going and yeah it does hit a certain um, pitched level at that point you know actually one thing that did i think not translate as well in the move from original publication in the 60s was the hotel dick that gives him you know that takes the money the, the shipbuilder um, yeah, because I wasn't sure. Actually, it was when I was doing the research. I was like, "Oh, that's." I thought he was the hotel manager, but he was the hotel private eye, which was a thing. You know, we see one in the Maltese Falcon, right? When he goes to the hotel to meet Sydney, 
uh, Longstreet and the when we first meet the the gunman, the gunsel in the lobby, and the the hotel dick comes over and that's when he's like, "Well, do you like guys with guns hanging out in your lobby?" And he he runs the, the kid out, and it's a I mean it's a a lot of Chandler's work, a lot of his earlier short stories were actually about hotel dicks that then got turned into proto um, Philip Marlowe's and some of those stories end up being merged into the larger novels that he cobbled together out of different short stories. So it was a very prevalent thing in the thirties and forties. Yeah. They then, don't do, they, they don't flesh that out here at all. No, it just kind of pops up. I'm like, I'm pretty sure by the sixties, especially the kind of hole in the wall hotel, that this is, seems to be taking place in, they would not have a hotel dick here. Like that was just kind of confusing. Um, so but yeah, otherwise, you know, it was fine. No, it wasn't even like bad. It was just one of those things. Where it was like this just feels a little anachronistic to the time. No, we're and we we know we know where we're going, and we know that that this is kind of the bridge as we haven't quite gotten to uh, to the, the the new American film renaissance of the of the seventies, and and next time that we we check in on on like true classic. Uh, you know, neo noir like this, we're we're gonna see a big evolution. Like like you mentioned, Long Goodbye is just around the corner, right. um, and and Altman is uh, Altman is not a classic studio director. <laughs> no, not at all. All right, so just to kind of pull the, the, the threads together here, how does each one of these kind of comment on the detective and noir? Right. So again, you know, we're in the 60s, 66, 69. We're a solid eight to 11 years after the end of the classic period with Touch of Evil. So, you know, we're, it is the noir moment has passed, but also we haven't really hit our stride with the retro noir of Chinatown or the neo noir of The Long Goodbye. So, how do you like, how does these feel like they're interacting with that, that tradition? Well, well, this is, um, this is certainly kind of, kind of the genre testing the waters, but, uh, but as mentioned, this is the; these are both cases of the detective having to face off against counterculture, and uh, and that's something that that there there was there are maybe elements of that, but for the most part, um, the the adversaries lurking at the corners were were political. They were foreign. They were they were um, they were of a different stripe than what we're getting out of out of both of these movies. Um, and, and I, and I think it, it's a question that the genre is going to continue asking itself for, for years to come, because we're going to keep seeing detectives in suits, often cheap suits. <laughs> and, uh, and they're still going to, as, as time progresses, they're still going to feel like a man at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's not really going to, change a whole lot as we as we work our way through they're going to be that we're still going to be getting the detective going up against the the culture of the day it may not be 60s counterculture but but we're going to see them against 70s stoner uh types we're going to see we're going to see them in the the midst of the 90s (laughs) and and the detective the detective himself is at least uh, in a lot of the, not all, but a lot of the the titles that we have on our agenda coming up, I think he 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 does increasingly feel like that 
that man at a time. Right. That's a really good point that and I think one of the reasons that we end up going with this and not the, the Tony Rome series is that, I mean, there are one word titles about Harper and Marlowe. Like that is, it is as much about, yeah, like I said, about the detective himself as it is about just sort of telling a crime thriller mystery. To me, it was interesting that these are our first two American noirs that are commenting on noir, right? They're sort of very con- self-consciously saying like, do you remember? We remember. We're, we're talking back to the past, admittedly the recent past, but, you know, again, with the Bacall or with some of the touches in Marlowe, these movies are aware of their place. You know, we're certainly, we're on the verge of hitting new Hollywood and the rise of the oh, American auteurs yes. of the seventies who grew up on the movies. And so are able to, I think a little bit more easily and subtly kind of quote and reference the past. And here it feels a little bit more uh, like it's not quite there. I do think Harper <laughs> is more successful at blending the detective into the present moment. Like it doesn't to me feels much of a, you know, as much of a paint job. Whereas the, the Marlowe movie to me feels like somebody almost maybe took a script from the 1940s that never got produced and then just kind of did a little polish to make it 60s appropriate, which is kind of essentially what happened because they're using the source material, right? But it, it for whatever reason, feels a little bit more, I think we talked about this in the last episode, but noir quotation marks, right? Like we're doing noir. And also like this is movies after the rise of film noir as a like critical idea too, right? Like, that was really just happening at the end of the noir period that the French critics were, were starting to bring this idea to bear. So now you have a new generation of movies getting made that are aware of the existence, like the, the concept of, of noir as something to engage with. And I, I think and, that is not something that's easily done. And, and they're interested in engaging, in the, in the case of these two, they're interested in engaging with it on a, on a story level. Um, and and on a level of a detective, but they're not interested or uh, or or not really showing it in engaging with it on a form level. Yes. Um, the they're they're not dissecting the medium itself. They're just they're just reinterpreting the story beats. And I think that's what it is, right? Because the especially as we're engaging with this as a genre, you know, a lot of the discussion of noir is actually you know like the original discussion of it wasn't as a genre but as a series right as like a moment in film history in a specific country with a specific start and end point where movies of a certain style uh kind of were in alignment with each other and so i think there is something that idea that neo-noir really kicks off when uh directors started and filmmakers started taking the underlying concepts of noir that drive and gird the stylistic choices of the original period and use those same ideas to make new stylistic choices in the 70s and again sort of say all right how can we use the the form to express the function whereas here like you said it's it's still sort of saying we're taking the function of those earlier movies the the underlying structure and that's sort of the thing that we're just reusing in a very 
I mean, honestly, kind of blindly directed style, right? Like, it's not, it's fine. Like, it's just it's there, fun. and it's conveying the ideas, but it's not, whereas so much of noir is about the expressive style in a in a heightened, to a certain degree, reality, even um, as the, these films are going on the streets, it's still expressing a heightened reality, and that's what's missing here. Yeah, um, and, 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 you know, we just came off a week where we, where we checked in on, on Godard and Suzuki and they are, are more formally daring and, uh, and, you know, regardless of where you land on both Made in USA and, and Detective Bureau two, three, they're, um, they're, they're exciting films to watch because they break the mold so much. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Both of these Marlowe and Harper, you know, to whatever degree you like either one, they're both, you know, inviting movies and agreeable movies, but they're not bold movies. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there's a place for that because Harper, uh, Harper does achieves what it sets out to. Agreed. Again, uh, like I really enjoyed Harper. I would recommend it for, for aficionados who have not seen it, but it is also definitely not, it is, it is such a weird in-between step from noir and neo-noir where, where they're just kind of trying to figure out what it is that you bring forward and how you make it work. Yeah. Well, um, we, we are soon going to get to a whole lot more of that very soon. Very soon. But right now it's time to answer the question. What's in the box in honor of kiss me deadly. What's something that you recently watched that's so good. It deserves to be glowing in a suitcase. I have not, uh, taken in a whole lot over the uh, the time since we last talked, but I did uh, I did catch a uh, a Bollywood movie that I absolutely adored. Big surprise, I know. Um, uh, Kucha Kucha Hota Hai uh, was such a delight. It is a late '90s Bollywood film. It is a repairing of Shah Rukh Khan and Kajol, who, if you know any Bollywood movie, I recommend knowing Diwali Dulhania Lajange, which is one of the, the, the best, uh, best movies of its kind. And it's a repairing of the, the two leads from that. Um, it also delivers and it's, it is extremely nineties. Um, it is a, uh, it's a sort of love triangle, except that, that one, one, corner of the uh the triangle dies in the opening minutes and um and and sets the story up uh for um for our our lovers to eventually come together by the end three hours later uh, but, but the music is gorgeous uh and uh and you know uh if uh if i if i find myself crying by the end of a movie uh, and it's not too hard to do with a Bollywood film. Um, I, I usually find it to be somewhat of a success. I'm because I am also, I, I'm a complete neophyte when it comes to Bollywood. So I'm hopeful that in the near future, I'll have the bandwidth that I can start dipping my toe in there. And I'm definitely going to be following your, your breadcrumb here, breadcrumb trail Happy here to. <laughs> to, to, to figure out what I should be watching. Keeping up with the 90s theme, uh, I recently watched Practical Magic, and i got to say I loved it. I, uh, I, I've never seen it. I don't know that you're going to enjoy it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, like, I'm not coming in here and being like, this is a great movie. 
but it is in so many ways hitting my sweet spots in terms of look just because uh, because of our age for at least for me and I'm probably for you too would be my guess the way that film stock is treated in the mid to late 90s to me is just how the movie looks right and movies before and after and the way that it's evolved into digital filmography now and looking back to technically you know like there's plenty of different periods of time that movies looked great i'm not i'm not saying that's that's not true but there's just something about the way that movies in the mid to late 90s were shot on film that is completely overlaps with how like my formative idea of what a movie is then anytime i see a movie that was filmed in that period and filmed at least you know uh, to some degree competently i'm like this is this is a just like it naturally brings out warm feelings in me on top of which is set in a small quaint but quirky new england town and uh you know deals with some themes of like sisterhood and community that uh, you know it's and it's uh, sandra bullock and nicole kidman and starring roles sisters i don't know like i said it's it's not i don't believe in guilty pleasures but it is it is a movie that I enjoyed that again I wouldn't say has a lot of I don't know again I'm not saying it's a great movie but it's a movie that I really enjoyed and if you can believe if, in guilty pleasures it's fine I, no it's, no, no, it's, no, it's okay. just like some of things I need to be guilty about right like I don't feel guilt about enjoying this movie I think it's totally valid for me to enjoy this movie I hope that there are other people out I know there are other people out there enjoy it too and I, I hope that some other people listening to this are also in that Venn diagram of, of people who are into you know light magic and uh 90s film stock and quaint new england towns and they're sort of like yes i also never knew i needed a which is a v-stwick meets gilmore girls style movie but that's what gets delivered and and it's it's enjoyable it's very enjoyable it was a great great watch i i love that it was late 90s week for us <laughs> Not a bad era to be living in, honestly. No. Yeah, you're there. There's a there's a real comforting nostalgia I mean, it's time. to that. It's the thirty year cycle has has come around, and it's time for the nineties to make the triumphant return. So you know, everybody get ready. I, it's not. I, I find I find comfort in different different pockets. It's not the the only the only. I think eighties oh, animation for sure. more the gives, the larger but, culture. I think is but, is reaching that point of you know what old what's old is is new once more. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at CelluloidDirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle CelluloidDirt. We'll see you next time when we bring Noir into the 70s with some defining exploitation films, Shaft and Trouble Man. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>